Keeping an eternal perspective is one of the more difficult things that we have to do in this life. Yesterday I had the privilege of officiating the wedding of Cole Scott and the former Emily Ellis, and it was a great delight to do so, to be there. And I know thinking about Cole's situation, I know talking to Cole about that day, I know from my own testimony, from the testimony of multiple young men, that of all the days to be enthusiastic about the return of the Lord, a wedding day is probably the least among those. There's the anti-Maranatha that's prayed, don't come, Lord. I'm not ready, not today. Of course, that misses, and, and it's expected, but it still misses the, the reality that the Lord promises a final wedding celebration. We were able to talk about that and celebrate that yesterday, that is going to, to outdo any earthly joys in the greatest sense it could possibly do so. It will make all of them pale by comparison to the amount of joy that will be there in that moment and that unification that takes place in glory. But we don't see that because our eyes are clouded over with the here and now, with temporary pleasures, with enjoyments, and, and we, we lose that ability to look up as we should. It's not that we shouldn't enjoy those moments. We, we absolutely should enjoy those moments. But our enjoyment in those moments should always be, be with a reminder that it is a gift of God. It is our ability to enjoy is because the Lord has given graciously to us. It's the work of his hand. It's his providence. It's his kindness and remembering his people. We always do better when we understand it's a gift so that we recognize that those gifts are only a shadow of the blessings which are to come in the life hereafter. There's also an opposite circumstance that affects our ability to look up, to, to see the Lord, to recognize eternity. Sometimes there are situations in life that are so bad that there's so much evil that we may have to suffer under that we fail to look up. Pastor Dodds pointed that out this morning. Some come into those Jobian circumstances where they, it goes beyond their ability to comprehend what they begin to, to resent and resist the thought that there is a, a kind and a gracious and a loving God who is in heaven. The Gadarene demoniac was so beset with sin, he would not look up. Nebuchadnezzar was so full of pride in himself that he refused to look up. And it is only after this great humility that takes place in this deliverance from the Lord that they're enabled to look up again and give God glory. But I think there's also a third circumstance that keeps us from looking up and seeing what we ought to see and looking towards heaven. We find that tonight in Psalm 73. Sometimes we come to the place of forgetting heaven altogether because our eyes are so focused on this world. The world in which we're living, the world in which our suffering is driven not so much by the circumstances we're in, but the circumstances we witness around us. We come to those situations in which we look and see how others are faring in this life and we see them prosper and we hate it. We see and we, we, we live in envy of those who are living worse than us but also living better than us, who are doing everything wrong but being treated as if they are doing everything right. They are being rewarded for evil. And this is not a problem that, that we face just living in an Instagram culture of comparison, of always seeing the best side of other people and what's going on. It was a problem that Bunyan talked about with Vanity Fair over 350 years ago. It's something that Peter spoke of 2,000 years ago in the passage that you heard that Pastor Dodds read. And it's something that Asaph deals with in Psalm 73. So let's tonight turn back to Psalm 73 and let's hear what the Lord would have to teach us from this psalm. Let's pray and ask the Lord to reveal it to us. Our Lord and our God, we thank you that you are a gracious and a good God. And we remind ourselves, even from the beginning, as we 
look at this text as we consider the words of one of your servants and his great struggle with his circumstances in this world. And pray, Lord, that we will recognize ourselves and our tendencies in this and that we will be humbled and we will be taught and we'll be drawn to see who you are and how gracious you are and how you give us that grace. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. One of the things that we can begin to do as we look at this text is we, we first off, we see who has written this text, who, who we understand to have written this text, this text for us. It is in, entitled a psalm of Asaph. And so we ask who the, the question, who is Asaph? Well, Asaph is the composer of a number of psalms, Psalm 50, and then beginning here in, in Psalm 73, at the beginning of book three of the psalms, and he goes on through Psalm 83, all are attributed to Asaph. And we first read about Asaph, when we go back further in our Bibles, to 1 Chronicles chapter 6. 1 Chronicles 6.31, if you want to turn there, you can see these words for yourself. 1 Chronicles 6.31, it says, Now these are the men whom David appointed over the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark came to rest. They were ministering with music before the dwelling place of the tabernacle of meeting until Solomon had built the house of the Lord in Jerusalem and they served in their office according to their order. First Chronicles 6.39 goes on. It specifically identifies Asaph of, as one of those servants who's been appointed by David in the ministry of music, and the ministry of song before the Lord. Asaph is there described as a descendant of Levi, of the order of the Kohathites. And he has been appointed to minister before the tabernacle first, and then eventually before the temple. First Chronicles 16 Verse 4, we read further that he's been appointed as a leader of worship. It says in 1 Chronicles 16, 4, And he, he, being David, appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank, and to praise the Lord, God of Israel. Verse 5, it says, Asaph the chief, and next to him Zechariah, then Jael, then Shemaramoth, Jehiel, Mattathiah, Eliab, Benaniah, Obed-Edom, Jaim with stringed instruments and harps, and Asaph made music with cymbals. He was a percussionist, serving before the Lord, serving before the ark of the Lord in this particularly blessed position to serve so near in worship. And if we continue on, 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verses 11 through 14, we learn that Asaph had an extended service of the kings. We recognize that his name is still being called upon as a ministry at the temple of the Lord. He is a Levite. He is a professional musician. He is serving at the temple dedication. He is there dressed in white with clashing cymbals, lifting up his voice, praising and thanking God, saying, For he is good and his mercy endures forever. And he's there to witness the Shekinah glory that comes and it descends into the temple. It recognizes the presence of the Lord is going to inhabit this permanent dwelling place of God among his people. That's Asaph. And that's going to be relevant to understanding this psalm. So let's now turn and let's look at the psalm. Psalm 73, verse 1. It begins, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. And the psalmist, he begins here well enough. He begins with a confession, a theological statement of, of truth. He affirms, he says, Truly God is good to Israel. He says it with conviction. This is something that he believes and he has become convicted that it is the truth. But as soon as we turn to verse 2, we see that that was not always the case. There was a time in which he has to confess about himself when he did not believe and understand and know these things, where he had lost these things. He says in verse 2, But as for me, my feet had almost 
stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Why? For I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Asaph had almost lost that truth that he had stated in the opening verse. It was, he was in danger of falling off the solid ground on which he had been standing, the rock of his God, and he had forgotten the goodness of the Lord. And so we have to ask, what was it that shook him? What, what threw him off of believing this thing that he had believed, that he had confidence in? Look in verse 4. He tells us. Asaph gives us details. And this is, it's worth noting as you go into this that unlike so many other psalms, Asaph is not going to be the victim. Instead, he's going to be a witness. He's going to be a watcher. He's going to be one who is seeing what is taking place in the world. He's making observations with his eyes and making judgments based on those observations with what he can see. Verse 4, he says, For there are no pangs in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. His assessment of the wicked is that they have a different kind of life, but not only that they have a different kind of life, but they have a different kind of death. He begins with their end, and he's looking at the end of the wicked, and he's saying, these people die well. They die easy. They have no pains in death. The, 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 the term that he uses there, he says they have no pangs. Another way that could be stated is that they, they have no bonds. They have no ropes tied to them, pulling them down into death. There's no struggle when they go. When they go, they die in their strength. He, another way to translate that is that they are fat and sleek. These are people who are living the good life. They are in the height of their strength. They are well fed. They have, they have an abundance of nutrition in, in a world of starving people. And, and they're, they're, there's, there's no trouble that comes upon them. No, 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 no starvation, no cancer, no blindness, no wasting diseases. They, they go right up until the end. Their knees work. Their hips work. Their ankles work. Everything is working just fine. And then they die a pleasant death in their sleep. And Asaph resents this. He looks at this and he, he sees that there are no plagues which befall them. It looks like everything is going their way, even in the way that they die. Then he notes other things about them. Look at verses 6 through 9. He says their, their pride serves as a necklace. They are, they are wearing their pride for all to see. They're, 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 there's no hint of humility in them. He goes on, violence covers them like a garment. They're, they're, they're unashamed to use their violence against people. These are our bullies who walk around with no fear of retribution. No concern that, that someone is going to, to come up and right their wrongs. They do what they want, wherever they want, however they want, and you're going to suffer under it. He says it's an embarrassment about how much they consume. Their eyes bulge out with abundance. That's a lot of abundance when your eyes are about to pop out of your face because you have so much. And then to add to all this, he says that they brag about it. And they, they brag about it not just to the people in the world around them, but they actually brag before the face of God. They are mockers of God on high. Asaph is, of course, provoked. How could you not be provoked when you see this level, level of injustice that's going on? It just becomes a, a habit of certain people in the world in which you live. But then we notice something else happens with Asaph. Not only is he seeing this, not only is he provoked by this, but his heart is actually taking a twisted turn. We see it in several verses. Look back in verse 3. What does he say? He says, For I was envious of the boastful. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, his heart is looking at what they have and what they do, and it is wanting. 
Verse 7, he says, their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than hearts could wish. He's saying, wow, if I, if I had what they had, I, I would have everything I could possibly want. Verses 10 and 11 and 12, he says, Therefore his people return here. Waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. His frustration has, has turned into futility and ultimately it's turned into envy. He's following that, that worldly logic which says, if you can't beat them, join them. If everything's going so well, so right, so good for them, surely there's something to commend living that way. And it leads them to make this terrible profession. Look at verse 13 and, and see how pathetic it is what is the next thing that comes from Asaph's mouth. He says, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. He's been reduced to utterly rejecting the truth that he knows He knows what's right. He knows what's good. He knows what he ought to believe. He knows the conviction that he ought to have about what's true, what's beautiful, what's God-honoring. And yet he's rejecting all of that because of what he is watching in the world around him. And he knows better. Turn back to Psalm 26. I want you to look at Psalm 26. It's a brief psalm. I'm going to read it in its entirety. Psalm 26 is a psalm of David, and and as I read it, I want you to recognize that the negative image that Asaph has painted of this ideal that you find in Psalm 26. David writes, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip, for your loving kindness is before my eyes, and I have walked in your truth. I have not sat with idolatrous Mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence. So I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and tell of all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands in an even place. In the congregations, I will bless the Lord. David looks for the Lord's vindication, not at the happy circumstances that should be in the world around him. David walks contented to walk in his integrity, despite the things that are happening around him. Rather than looking at the wicked, what he is looking at, what he tells and testifies he's going to look at, he's going to look at the loving kindness of the Lord and be grounded and oriented by that. He doesn't look at the wicked and want their company. He refuses to be found with them and he pleads with the Lord that he be separated from them, even in death. He doesn't care what kind of death they die, just so long as however he dies, whatever pain and suffering that he's going through, so long as it's not in the company of the wicked. He washes his hands in innocence, that which Asaph is giving up on, and he sings praise to God rather than lamenting those things that he doesn't have. It's no wonder that when we read about Asaph, he is saying that his foot is almost slipping, unlike David's whose foot is planted on the rock. David is in the even place, and he is in the the assembly of the upright, praising God together in the congregation of God's people. 
We'll go back to Psalm 73, verse 14. Asaph's lament goes on. And then he says this, For all day long I have been plagued and chastened every morning. And here Asaph should be instructed because he knows as a, as a writer of Psalms himself where these things come from. Asaph is the author, the author as I mentioned before, of Psalm 78. It is that, that, that psalm which celebrates the exodus from Egypt, the redemption of God's people. And in a multitude of ways he talks about the plagues which are from the Lord. But he can't recognize that the Lord would give him a plague in his own life. He says, I am chastened every morning. And he was one who served under King Solomon who wrote in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor detest his correction. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father the son in whom he delights. And when we were to, to go to Hebrews chapter 12 and to see where that passage is expounded, we know that the chastening he's talking about is not simply discipline as consequences of sin, but that identification that takes place in suffering for the Lord's sake. Asaph is missing the things that are in front of him that are, that are so obvious and should be so obvious for a man of God serving his position. And he's gotten himself to the lowest point and he's gotten there by, by focusing on his pain. He's focusing on what he feels, what he suffers, what he doesn't have, what he's lost, what he's missing out on. And it's brought him to a place of depression. And that's what depression does. What some of you know, you, you, you've lived this person in your life where you've, you, you've been, been caught up and gone down to that, that place of misery. And there are a multitude of reasons that people get depressed. And some are earned and some aren't. But when someone is depressed, no one wins. Everyone suffers. Because depression intensifies self, it intensifies pain, it intensifies envy, and it intensifies all those things that make life unpleasant. And in the middle of all of it, it resists hope. It doesn't want to be comforted. Even though it knows it desperately wants comfort more than anything else, it turns away all comforts when they come. It would be miserable if this was the end of the psalm, wouldn't it? If this is where we stopped and, and where the psalmist left off. But, but this is not where it ends because there is hope and he does lay hold of it. Look back in, in Psalm 73 to verse 15. He goes on, he now says, If I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me. He recognizes the futility of his thinking. He recognizes that if, that if I'm going to go down this road, I'm going to see things that I'm seeing and think about them. And the way that I'm thinking about them, I'm only going to suffer. And I'm going to cut myself off from the people of God. And so then he goes to verse 17, and he says an interesting thing here. It's something I don't think we contemplate enough whenever we contemplate this particular psalm. He says, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their end. What does he mean by that? What does he mean when he says he went into the sanctuary of God? We recognize what he's saying here. He's talking about going into the holy place. He's talking about going to the place where God has said that he will meet with his people. And we know, we, 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 have a, we have physical diagrams of this. The scripture lays out for us incredibly clearly. There is something that was given for God's people to see. To know the details of. To, to, to understand this, this context. And it was the context of the tabernacle and ultimately the temple. If you were in the College Plus class this morning, they, they were uh, entertained by an impromptu 
discussion of the tabernacle. Some of them were there and said, Pastor Anderson, you're very incompetent. Um, they know what I'm talking about. But we got to go through this. And part of what we're going to see and what, what they're going to see is that the tabernacle is a place to go to have your, orient, your, your thinking oriented in the right way. What happens when you walk into the tabernacle courts? What happens when you, when you go through, through that opening in that fence to, to enter into that court? The first thing you see is the bronze altar. The bronze altar was that on which the blood of, of bulls and goats and sheep was spilled by the thousands. And it testified that sin has a price. That there's a cost in blood for those who give themselves over to sin. It testified that there was a substitute that was going to be demanded that was required in order to have fellowship with God. The next thing that you would come to is a basin for washing, of which a man could be sprinkled clean and rendered fit for service to the Lord, only and if and only if he were washed by the Lord. If you were to continue on, you would go into that holy place, into the, the, the front door of the tabernacle, and on your right you would see there was a table for showbread. On that table you would see 12 loaves that were placed there representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Reminding of the provision that the Lord had made for them. And then across the room on the left side, you would have the, the, the golden lampstand, the menorah, shining light down, picturing God's blessing, smiling upon the people of God. It's ever burning. Beyond that, towards the rear of the holy place, you would find the altar for incense. And the altar for incense, there would be smoke that goes up, reminding you of the presence of the Lord, that glory cloud, but also representing those prayers which actually ascend to where God is. It's a declaration saying the Lord sees, he knows, he cares, and he's willing to hear his people. Of course, that would obscure the way into the most holy place. That place into which only the high priest could go once a year, only with blood. And there was the Ark of the Covenant. There was the perfect law of God at its heart in the Ark of the Covenant. And there on top of the Ark was the mercy seat. That throne of God, that place where God would meet with his people. And it is declared the mercy seat because God is willing to show mercy. Why did Asaph know all of this? Why did he know all these details? Well, he was a Levite. The book of Leviticus was written especially for him to know and to understand and to fulfill his role in serving this tabernacle and this temple. And Asaph understood this picture. It was a picture of how evil was going to be defeated. It was a picture of how God's presence could be regained. It was a picture of, of the price that had to be paid for sin in order that fellowship could be restored. And so Asaph is looking towards the holy place. He is looking and seeing this declaration of the gospel of restored fellowship through a substitute, declaring to him that he could be right, he could be accepted. And yet those who would not go in that way, those who would not follow what would was required they would suffer apart from the Lord you see how this 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 truth this picture this image that he knows that he goes to that he sees transforms his thinking look back at verse 18 he says surely you set them in slippery places you cast them down to destruction oh how they are brought to desolation as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awakes so Lord when you awake you shall despise their image. It's not Asaph who's going to slip now. It's going to be the wicked. They are not only going to fall. They are going to be cast down by the Lord. He's looking forward to that day that the Apostle Paul testifies to the Thessalonians. We read about it in 1 Thessalonians 5. We're going to hear about it again in the not too distant future. But he writes to the Thessalonians saying, But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. 
For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. The eternal hopes of heaven. Asaph is able to look into the tabernacle and he is able to see this glorious provision of a way forward, a way in which they will be made right with God and a way in which the wicked will be cast out forever. And this humbles him. And we see this in verse 21. He says, Thus my heart was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was so foolish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Thomas Crane, an old Puritan, wrote in a prospect of divine providence about the elements of complaining, talking in particular about this passage. He says, what, what is it that makes, makes for complaining? Why is it that people complain and do what they do, just as Asaph had been doing? Four things. Ignorance, number one. They don't know and they don't ask more questions. They live in ignorance and make statements out of ignorance. A second thing is Pride. They are sure of themselves and their position that they see all and they know all. A third thing, impatience. They only see what is here and now and they're not willing to look in the future to anticipate a better day that's coming. And then, of course, forgetfulness. With forgetfulness, they forget what they have been promised by God. They forget to wait upon the Lord. They forget that he has proven himself time and again and days before. When you go down this road, you are ready to blaspheme the Lord. Folly leads to greater folly. Asaph, by his own admission, was guilty at all points. Not unlike Job, not unlike the preacher of Ecclesiastes, but as with those who almost slipped, who almost lost their footing, who almost went off the way, they were lifted up and out of despair. And Asaph is among them. He is brought out. Listen to verse 23. Listen to the change in tone when he gets to verse 23 and what's happened with him as he has come back to the truth. He says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold me by my right hand. You will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Asaph is now comforted by the presence of the Lord. Now he knows this God that he can't feel, that he can't see, but by the testimony of the word, by the testimony of the tabernacle, now he knows he is once again in the presence of God. The wicked caused him to lose sight. He was staring at them. He was focused on how they were getting on in life. He was thinking about what he was missing out on. But now that he returns to the Lord, all is right. And he knows his end. He says, I know I'm going to be received into glory. And it doesn't matter what kind of death I die. It doesn't matter what kind of pains I endure as I face my death. I am going to the place of glory. And he knows who his hope is. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? 
There's none on earth that I desire besides you. He, he repents of his earlier thinking. He changes it now that he's confessing and believing and hoping into that, that, that greater gift of the presence of the Lord. Just as God promised to Abraham, Abraham, I'm your shield and your exceedingly great reward. The, the biggest gift that you are being given is not this, this, this gift of the land, the promise. It's not an inheritance. It's not a large family. It's not anything. It's that your gift is me. How good it is when we see ourselves as we are. We see what's missing in us and what's missing in our thinking and we see the Lord for who he is. We have our feet firmly fixed upon the rock and so we say my flesh and my heart may fail but God is the strength of my heart. He is my portion forever. Who was Asaph? Asaph was a Levite. He was one that he was assigned to have God as his portion. Numbers 18.20 says, The Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the children of Israel. Asaph forgot who he was. He forgot even from the very beginning that his portion was with God. It was what the Lord was giving to him and providing for him. Is this not our problem as well, that we forget who the Lord has made us? That we are a kingdom of priests, that we are a holy nation, we are a royal priesthood. His declaration about us, about who we are, we have a new identity that's outside ourselves. It's earned for us by someone else. It is a gift of God that can only be given by God to us. So he concludes, for indeed those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry, who, who give up and worship other gods. He says, but it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all your works. So how do we apply that? How do, how do, we, how do we own this? And I think that it is important that we do own this. This is, this is a tool. Psalm 73 is something that ought to be in, in the knowledge, the corpus of the things that you possess for yourself that you go back to when those moments, become, when those moments come because you are people who envy and you know you do. You know this part of your fallen nature to look at the world around you to see what's going on with other people and to want. One of the commentaries I was reading on this talked about a particular sin that we don't think of. It's a term you probably never use at all to describe sin. But it's the sin of misprizing. Misprizing. That is failing to value things correctly. And interestingly enough, Scripture abounds with a multitude of the sins of misprizing, and whatever misprizing, and whenever it shows them, it shows some of the, the most painful consequences of any sin. Let's think about these. Genesis twenty-five, we see the example of Esau who despised his birthright. We know the description of him in, in Scripture in Hebrews chapter chapter twelve, but the, the consequences that fell upon him to, to abandon the, the inheritance, the promise of God, because he counted it a small thing. Lot was one who chose the Jordan River Valley. He looked up to see that it was beautiful, and he chose it to the peril of his family. We read about this in Genesis thirteen, and then of course nineteen we find out what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. Joshua chapter seven, there's a story of Achan who who saw the gold and prized it. And collected it and took it for himself and took it back thinking he was going to do himself and his family good. But instead brings them all down to Sheol. Pharaoh overvalued the, the presence of Israel and his nation. He fought so hard to keep them and what did it do but give him the greatest of destruction. 
We see examples in the New Testament. Martha preferred to wait on tables over Mary. Jesus says she's chosen what is better. It will not be taken away from her. Martha, for whatever wonderful servant she was, lives in infamy for not choosing to worship Christ. Ananias and Sapphira, they chose money over honesty. They lied to the Holy Spirit and they were deprived of both their money and their lives. And then, of course, Judas, what did he do? He betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He gave up on the Son of God to give himself over to ill-gotten gain. Misprising is ultimately about wrong allegiances. We miss out what obligation we have to God, to Christ the King, to the Word of God, to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we give it over to silly, petty, selfish things. Jesus spoke to it. He says, Do not lay up treasure for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. More pointedly, he says in Matthew 16, 26, For what, is it, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world, but he forfeits his own soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? We are fools when we misprize, when we value the wrong things, when we give up on God and Christ and the word of God and the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another thing we should think about in the context of this passage. Going back to the first verse, Psalm 73, verse 1, Asaph writes, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. That's a question we should know the answer to. Who is the pure in heart? What, what does he mean by that? That they would receive the goodness of the Lord. And we might think that the verses provide an answer. It's not the boastful. It's not the wicked. It's not violent oppressors. It's not the indulgent, wealthy, or mockers of God. But it's not just those that don't do bad things. This isn't just a Santa Claus kind of theology where there's coal for the baddies and gifts for the do-gooders. Scripture does uphold a reward for the righteous and judgment for wicked men. That's, that's very much a part of what, what the scripture teaches. But the psalm takes us beyond that because the psalmist was tempted to say, surely I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocence. He can say that because he looks around at the world and he's seeing that his righteousness in this life is not being rewarded as he would suspect. There's a sense where While there is moral purity that is required, the greater emphasis is on loyalty to God, which results in moral purity. Listen to Psalm 24, 3-5. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord, or who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol, nor sworn deceitfully. He shall receive blessings from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. It takes us back to those who have the privilege of drawing near to God. Those who go to the sanctuary. Those who are, who are in the presence of the Lord. This was Asaph's duty and his calling. I want to take you back again. 1 Chronicles 16.37 says, So he left Asaph and his brothers there before the ark of the covenant of the Lord to minister before the ark regularly as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with his 68 brethren, including Obed-Edom, the son of Judathan and Hosea, to be gatekeepers, and Zadok the priest and his brethren to be priests before the tabernacle of the Lord at the high place that was at Gibeon, 
to offer burnt offerings to the Lord on the altar of burnt offerings regularly morning and evening to do according to all that is written in the law of the Lord, which he commanded Israel. And with them, Heman and Judithan and the rest were chosen. They were set apart. They were pure, who were designated by name to give thanks to the Lord because his mercy endures forever. This was Asaph's job, to be pure by being set apart to the service of the Lord, to be loyal to his duty, his responsibility to minister before the Lord, to to worship God. And the answer to, 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 to what makes us clean, certainly there is moral purity that's involved in that, but it is in being loyal and steadfast and devoted to the one true and living God and his word, what he says about how we're made right. And that's the last thing that you should notice, and we'll close with this, is that this is not a public confession or an expose of a, of a man's existential crisis that you're reading about in Psalm 73. This is a song for God's people. This is something we've collectively been invited to enter into and to be a part of, to recognize ourselves in this psalm and to sing it as our praise to God, our confession of our sin, and our confidence that goes beyond our sin to look to the Lord and be delivered. Psalm 73, verse 28, But it is good for me to draw near to God. I put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all your works All God's righteous doings, but especially God's work of salvation. It calls on us to confess the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see him as we look to the tabernacle. The way is provided. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. Asaph would have you believe that. To have that belong to you. To have that be your confession. That you might not be caught up by looking at the world. Drag yourself down into false confessions. But that you would have hope in this life for the life to come. Let's pray together. Our Lord God, we thank you that you have loved us as you have loved us, that you have looked upon us with pity, that you have displayed mercy, that you have provided a way for us to enter in that does not open by ourselves, but comes through a righteous substitute to stand in our place. Thank you, Lord, that he is worthy to be offered up into your presence, to go before you, to stand and even to intercede for us. We pray, Father, that we might know and believe and cling to his righteousness, that our hands might be innocent as well. We pray these-